Please open up your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you're not sure where to find it, just flip your Bible open to a right about the middle, and you'll find like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs. We'll be in chapter 1 this morning. I've thought, I've thought a lot about this, and I really think I could make a good prosperity gospel preacher. I think I could. Hear me out. I have a pretty good smile. <laughs> I still have most of my hair. Uh, I'm, I'm just sickeningly optimistic all of the time. Always look on the bright side. Uh, I, I never want to like disappoint people or deliver any kind of bad news. I think I could totally get up here every single Sunday and just talk about all the things that make us feel all warm and squishy and, and happy on the inside. Uh, and, 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 and could have a church that's gigantic and have, and have book deals and, and really nice cars and people would come from miles to have me tell them the things that they want to hear. Things that, you know, tickle their ears. Things that sound right to us. The, the only thing preventing me from owning a Ferrari is, is the Bible. <laughs> and this book of the Bible in particular. <laughs> because I, I don't think I could, I could honestly stand up here every single week and tell you that you can have your best life now. Because the Bible tells us that in this world, we will have trouble. I can't stand up here and genuinely convey this idea that every day is going to be Friday. Because there's a time for Fridays. And there's also a time for Mondays. There's a time for every season under heaven. How horrible would it be for me to, to shame you for not dancing all the time when it's not time to dance, it's time to mourn. And how twisted uh, would it be for me to just blow these golden smoke rings and watch as you futilely grasp at nothing? That, that kind of preacher and that kind of church are not a new thing. Uh, it's more of the same. Just, just more selfishness and striving after the wind only wrapped up in churchy words. Preaching that meaning can be found in the temporary and fleeting things of this world is foolish. It's not something that I can do. Mostly because of this sermon delivered by this preacher. Look at verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word Ecclesiastes means preacher comes from a Greek word, ekklesia, which means church or assembly. The Hebrew word here is koheleth. It's likely that this particular preacher is Solomon, but he doesn't identify himself as Solomon. I don't, I don't think he wants to be identified with his name here. He wants to be identified with his role. And his role primarily is preacher, but he's, he's also a thinker and an explorer and an experimenter, and a dabbler, and an investigator, an evaluator, and a reporter. This particular preacher is more believable than the average preacher because this guy doesn't need anything from us. 
He isn't looking to build his church or to sell his latest book or to get you to follow him. He already has plenty of money. And he has a pretty good following because he's king. And he has a stable job. Instead, this sermon that he's preaching is a gift that he wants to give to those of us who don't have the same kind of time or money or wisdom to investigate what's really meaningful in this world. And so because of that, his preaching is, is genuine and authentic. So this is a, this is a preacher that speaks from a seat of wealth and experience but also from a place of old age. I spent a, a good amount of my time in college and seminary studying this book. It's fascinated me. I read it, and I, and I parsed the words, and I outlined it, and I taught some of the ideas from it, but I don't think I ever really fully understood this book of the Bible until now. And my guess is 10 years from now, I'll understand it even better. Because while this is a book that I think is one of the most relevant in the whole Bible, it makes more and more sense the older you get. I I think that this preacher is preaching right to somebody just like me, middle-aged. Because when I was young, I never really thought about meaning, right? I just lived my life, loved my wife, worked hard, tried to do my best at building a life. When, when you're 20, you don't stop and ask why all that often. But there, there comes a point in everyone's life, and often it's the midway point, when meaning and purpose start to become more important and we start to ask more questions. And a lot of times people ask the question, is this it? Is this all there is? Did I miss out on something? Is there, is there supposed to be more that's passed me by? And a lot of times at that point of midlife crisis, this discontentment fueled by fear and insecurity drives people to go searching for something else. and They go looking for meaning in, in a new partner or a new job or a new experience or a new adventure. And before long, they discover it's, it's just the same old routine, but now with, with more heartache. Emptiness. This, this creeping discontentment inside of us is pervasive. I think it's something that resides at the level of our deepest fears and insecurities, and all of us have them. And, and it's not a logical thing. A lot of times, it's, it's something that uh, we can't easily name. But it's there. It exists in us, whether you are a church-going person or not. the preacher of Ecclesiastes has been through it himself. He says to himself, look at how much I have. I've got wisdom and I've got greatness and I've got power and I've got wealth, but I still feel like I need to find out what matters in life. And so he says, I know, I know I'll experiment with pleasure, with women and wine and laughter. Maybe there's meaning there. 
I know I'll, I'll throw myself into my work, build gardens and buildings and, and have this empire of servants. Why not? I have time and I have resources to try it all. And, and this particular preacher, he doesn't, he doesn't just plunge spastically headlong into foolishness. No, his pursuit of meaning is done with his great wisdom still intact. It's, it's a balanced and thoughtful, careful evaluation. Remember, King Solomon is this guy who is the only one to have a genie-like wish granted to him, right? God said, ask for whatever you want. Money, power, whatever you want. And Solomon said, I want, I want wisdom. I want to be able to rule this kingdom wisely, God. And because of that, God granted him that wisdom along with all those other things. So this, this preacher is older and more experienced and exceptionally wise. He, he preaches from this seed of experiential knowledge. He's telling us about things that he himself has tried. This sermon is also poetic. He speaks in a way that's wistful and reflective. This sermon isn't pointed at our heads like the well-constructed theological arguments that Paul presents. Now, this sermon is pointed a little bit lower at our hearts. Maybe even lower than that at our, at our gut. At, he's pointed at the level of our soul's longings. And to hear this sermon, to really hear it, will require some introspection on our part. It means that we're going to have to pull these deep, dark fears and insecurities up into the light. And it's going to require us to be honest with those things that we fear and that we hate and that we avoid. This preacher is brutally honest. And we won't gain much from his sermon unless we can be honest with ourselves. So the result of Kohelis' honest search is this sermon. And it's not really what we would expect from the Bible or from a preacher. Look at his opening words in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Ah, he would not make a good health and wealth preacher. The very first word in his sermon is the Hebrew word havel, which means meaningless, vanity, mist, breath. It's, it's substanceless and futile. Most English Bibles translate the word as, as a vanity, but I think that word for us is too closely linked with, with pride or arrogance. But that's not what he's talking about here. This kind of vanity means hollowness or worthlessness. Something that's lacking in any real value. And given the context, I really think that the word futile fits the best. Because futility has built into it this idea of trying and trying and trying, but never being able to succeed at something. 
because it's not possible to succeed at it. It's like trying to put a square peg into a round hole that's futile. Like trying to catch a whale in a bucket. It's not going to happen. Trying to find eternity in temporary things. It's meaningless. Meaninglessness is, I think, one of the things that we fear the most. It's something we try and escape from. But what he's telling us is we can't. Vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Futile, futile, everything is futile. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And I don't think he's, he's preaching these words for dramatic effect. I don't think that this is just intended to be a catchy opening line for him. I think what we see here is genuine sorrow. This is, this is frustration and anger and sadness all wrapped up together and, and spat out. He really means what he says. Everything is meaningless. And even when I try and find things that aren't meaningless, I just end up with more empty handfuls. It's all empty. And I think for most of us, those words resonate in a weird way in our soul, right? Like there's part of us that recognizes like, yeah, that's probably true. But a bigger part of us that says, no way, that can't be true. This can't be right. There's got to be a catch. There's got to be something that's meaningful. Something that matters in this world. No? Nothing? Everything is meaningless? I think he means to to deconstruct everything that we think is valuable and show us just how worthless it is. In the very next chapter, he's going to systematically hold up to us all of those things that matter the most to us in our lives and show us that they're empty. Why is this in the Bible? This this feels so dark and hopeless and sad. Why would God want me to feel sad? This this feels a lot like a Monday and every day is supposed to be Friday. Maybe there's some encouragement in verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? The answer, nothing. None. What do we gain from the things that we try to do? What matters? Where's our meaning? Those are all good questions. He uses an interesting phrase here. One which I think has a little bit of light to it. And he'll use this phrase over and over again all throughout this sermon. It's going to come up again. It's the words, under the sun. Maybe that's the first glimpse of light in this super dark place. Because it gives us some context to his sermon. Where are things meaningless? Under the sun is where. And that's, that's good news and that's bad news for us, right? It's good news because maybe there is a place 
higher than the sun, beyond the sun, where we can find some meaning. But it's bad news for us because under the sun is where every single one of us happens to live right now. This preacher starts off his sermon with this little poem that he wrote. Uh, it doesn't have a title, but I think if, if we were to give a title, a good one might be Meaninglessness Under the Sun. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular course the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. That which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this is, it is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur there'll be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. I know what you're thinking, wow, that is the most depressing poem I've ever read. <laughs> but that's just his first poem. He's got more. <laughs> and this poem is intended to communicate to us a couple of things. First, your life is fleeting. It's short. This world has been spinning for thousands of years, and you and I are just a tiny blip. In the words of the great poet Roger Waters, you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The wind blows, the rivers flow, the sea never gets full. The wind will blow when you're gone. Same river will flow into the sea without you. It was there before you and it will outlast you. The second, there is nothing new under the sun. It's all the same. It doesn't matter the time or the country. If it's under the sun, it's been done before. The things that we do as human beings are the same kinds of things that we've always been doing and always will. Studying and working and marrying and fighting and loving and playing and eating, mourning. Sure, we have new technologies that help us do those things faster, but there's nothing new. Third, no one will remember you. Just like we've forgotten those who've come before us, we will be forgotten by those who come after us. So go ahead, work like a stinking dog. No one cares. You, you won't be immortalized. Sorry. Just be dead and forgotten. Oh, the same, the same song is sung over in Psalm 90. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. 
Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Your life is too short to matter, and there is nothing new here anyway, and you won't be remembered. Those are the things that contribute uh, to everything under the sun being meaningless. Ah, is, okay, so is this, is this preaching? Or is this just moping? Is this, is this just like a, like a depressive episode that he's going through here? The thing is, is that this same sermon, this same preaching, it's, it's gonna be preached by other preachers, by great preachers that will come after this one. Some of the, the best preachers that ever lived will say some of the exact same things. In one of his more poetic moments, Paul says in Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The whole creation groans and suffers and and so do we. I think the preacher of Ecclesiastes would say, yes, Paul gets it. Here's a guy that understands. It's exactly what I feel. Everything under the sun has been subjected to futility. Everything groans, aches because of it. Even the greatest preacher who ever lived seem to understand the truth of futilely grasping for things under the sun. Jesus asked this question, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? The preacher of Ecclesiastes, he says, look at what you have to gain under the sun. Nothing. It's all meaningless. There's nothing that matters. Jesus, on the other hand, says, look at what you have to lose in this life. Everything. Everything that matters. The goal is the same for both Jesus and the preacher of Ecclesiastes to get us to stop loving worthless things. And the problem for us is that we don't believe either one of those preachers. Not really. We don't really believe that the things that we love under the sun are that worthless. We think they're everything. They seem so important to us. And there are so many people that are just racing headlong for them that it feels like we should stampede in that same direction. And we don't really believe that in our striving for things under the sun that we 
are forfeiting our eternal soul. No, no, because there's a nice guy with a mullet and a big smile on TV that keeps telling me that God wants me to name it and claim it and have all of these cool things under the sun. Wealth and comfort. But Jesus seems to think that even if we could gain everything, even if we could gain the whole world, it would be meaningless. The preacher of Ecclesiastes and Jesus are ultimately going to teach us how we're supposed to view the things that God has given us here in this life. In one of Jesus' first sermons, He says these words, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's interesting to me just how similar Jesus and the preacher of Ecclesiastes sound here. Everything under the sun rots and fades. Jesus shows us that there is a place higher than the sun where we can find meaning, where things won't fall apart. Jesus is the one that tells us, stop worrying about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and then all of those other things that we search for under the sun, those things will take care of themselves. And one of the books that I've been reading uh, in preparation for this study is, is the one that's it's in your bulletin. It's called Recovering Eden, the Gospel According to Ecclesiastes. The reason why I like it so much, I, li- I like the title. Because I really do think Ecclesiastes is a sermon that's preached from a guy who's mourning those things that we lost in Eden. And he's painfully wrestling with what are, what are we supposed to do with our lives in this broken and cursed and weed-infested place? And, and he hints at something more. But I, I think he struggles at times to really put his finger on what that something more might be. But it leads us, you and I, straight to the Gospel. Jesus comes pointing the way clearly to the new Eden. A new heaven and a new earth and a new life and a new experience and a new relationship with God and a new way of being. There is nothing new under the sun. But if we lift our eyes just a little bit higher, we see that there is a God who says, behold, I am about to do something new. And the old creation makes way for something that's new in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 
I'll come back next week and we'll sit and squirm while the preacher dismantles all of the things that we love the most. Uh, Dear God, I thank You, Lord, for this hard, stretching book of the Bible. Thank You for how it helps us to put in proper place all of these things under the sun that we think are so important. Thank You, God, that You have given our lives meaning, not in what we do or in what we build, but in our relationship with You. That through Jesus Christ, we are a new creation. That there is eternity that is set before us. That there is hope and there is life and there is meaning. Lord, help us to receive all of these good gifts that You give us in this life as as blessings from Your hand and help us not to worship them or to think that they are the meaning of life or an end in themselves. Help us to rightly understand, dear God, that our meaning can only be found through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. In His name I pray. Amen.